Let's go to Genesis chapter 7 again this week. Genesis 7. We started this study on the 10th of October, 2021. And after a year and a half, we're finally at the flood. Amen. We have arrived at the day when God will pour out His wrath upon an ungodly world in the form of a global flood. Everything which has the breath of life will be destroyed. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Hallelujah. And only eight souls and the animals upon the ark are going to be spared. We we talked last week about how Noah had a faith worth following. His family had to trust he was being led of God. What a goofy thing. Build an ark. The world's going to flood. Come on, Noah, seriously. But he had a faith worth following. And his family followed him. His wife followed him. His children uh, followed him. And we ought to have a faith worth following. People ought to know, our family ought to know we're right with God. And they ought to know that if God speaks, I've got something from the Word of God, and I'm going to guide my family according to God's Word. It's got to be a faith worth following. We, We need to have something worth emulating. We talked about the end of verse 16 where we read, The Lord shut them in. We made two applications from this. Actually, I did. You didn't really do anything. Um, (laughs) One application, there'll be times in our walk with God where we have no choice but to fully trust Him. They had to trust that God could protect them when He shut them into that ark. That He could seal that outer door. All of that was out of their control. He had built the ark just as God has said, but he could not put the the finishing touches on it, if you will. And he had to trust that God was able to care and protect for him. And and there's going to be times when all we can do is trust God. Times where situations are so much greater than we are that we don't have the financial resources. We, We don't have the people we can call upon. We have a situation that's coming to our life and we don't know how to deal with it and God wants to bring you to those places so you learn to trust Him wholly. When you come to the place where God is all you have, you will find He's all you need. And the choir sings something like that. I don't know if I have the words exactly right. The other application, of course, was once the Lord shut them in, they were secure. And once they were in... In the ark, they were safe. Once we're born again and we're in the ark of Christ, we are secure. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. It is called eternal life for a reason. It doesn't go away. You can't lose it. You weren't good enough to earn it. You're not good enough to keep it. Amen. 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 So we have to base our salvation off of God's Word and not our works. We base it off of His promises not our performance. If you, if you always look to your ability as your assurance, you're going to be disappointed and you're going to be defeated because you're always going to fall short of the glory of God. I'm not giving you a license to sin. I'm just simply saying we're still robed in this flesh and we still have sin in our lives and we still battle things. And there's times when it's not going to feel like, maybe, I don't know, God, am I? Why am I still struggling with this? 
And you just have to trust His Word. What does His Word say? His Word says you're sealed, you're safe, you're secure forevermore. Get that settled in your heart and then rest in that blessed assurance. Take God at His Word, move past salvation, and grow into maturity. And then the last thing we discussed last week was once they were shut in, the world was then shut out. Very sobering to think. No one could get in once that ark was shut. The door of grace had been closed. There's a door, the Bible says, which the Lord shutteth and no man openeth. There would be no more mercy or grace available to those outside the ark who had rejected God. And so it will be again one day soon. I, I do not say that with any kind of joy that people are going to die and go to a devil's hell. But I do rejoice in the Lord's coming again. And one day when He returns, He's going to pour out His wrath again upon this entire world. All those who have rejected Christ will suffer His judgment. Only those in Christ will be spared. So I hope you're in Christ today. Do you know Him as your Savior? And if you aren't sure, thank God, it still isn't too late. God is still extending His mercy and His grace But for how much longer? Only God knows that answer. So get in while you still can. All right, as we begin today, let's read verses 11 and 12, and then we'll drop down and read verses 17 through 24. The Bible says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, The windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And then let's drop down to verse 17. And the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth. And the waters prevailed and were increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark went upon the face of the waters. The waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under the whole heaven were covered. Fifteen cubits upward did the waters prevail, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beasts and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life of all that was in the dry land died. And every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground, both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of the heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. And Noah only remained alive, and they that were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed upon the earth in hundred and fifty days. As we look at this today, I want you to know that it would take an entire sermon series to talk about and digest all that these verses cover. There's so many different aspects of talking about the flood that we don't have time to get into it. In fact, there are ministries that are in organizations that are built on this whole defense of the Bible when it comes to creation and the flood. And so we, we could take a lot of time here. We're not going to do that. I'm only taking one service. Amen. Now, if you're interested in learning more, then there's some really good material out there. I would encourage you to do some research on your own. There's some things worthy of your consideration. However, please do so with the understanding that God's Word is truth, not man's opinions, 
not man's theories. All the conjectures about how the flood may have impacted our earth must be understood as man's ideas, not scriptural fact. Even though there's some very compelling things out there, I'll even make mention of some of those today. With that disclaimer out of the way, I'll go ahead and say I'm of the opinion that God's great flood altered this earth atmospherically, climatologically, and geologically. I've already covered while in chapter 5 how the flood must have changed conditions atmospherically enough to alter our lifespans because pre-flood people lived hundreds of years. After the flood, the Bible is clear that the lifespan slowly decreased until we have what we have today. The atmospheric changes helped to change the earth climatologically. For example, did you know it's been proven that palm trees once covered the coastline of Antarctica? How's that? Talk about climate change. Now, I'm personally intrigued with the idea that it's possible the earth may have originally received the same amount of sunlight at all places, and therefore there was a more uniform temperature globally before the flood, but perhaps the flood altered all that, and that's what God used to tilt the earth on His axis. And now much of the earth experiences seasonal changes, right? Many go through four seasons throughout the year. Sometimes in South Dakota, we experience all four in two days. We have weather patterns, violent storms, and as an added bonus, we even have things like daylight savings time. <laughs> Don't forget, next week, amen. <laughs> and then I believe the flood would have changed this earth, this earth geologically, at least to some degree. Um, we can see micro-scale versions of that when there's a flood. It, it changes the landscape. One of the greatest attacks on Genesis is what is called the geological column. This is, sorry, I was going to do a slideshow for you today. It was going to be on. This took me way too long to put together, so just envision slides. <laughs> the geological column has been used to theorize how the earth must be billions of years old. And with this idea, many Christians have tried to fit these supposed millions and billions of years in between verses 1 and 2 of Genesis chapter 1. And they do so in an effort to account for the, geologic, the, the geological column which contains the fossil record. But it makes more sense to me that the flood would have shaped all of that. I don't have time to get into it all, but I could not overstate just how damaging the mid to late 1800s were to American biblical thought. I've covered this in some other series, and, and I don't have time to get into that. But it was thought that all these scientific discoveries were contradicting the Bible. And many in the Christian community panicked. And they thought, what are we going to do now? We've been teaching a young earth. And so they tried to find ways to fit modern scientific thought into the Bible. But as Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.20, this is nothing more than oppositions of science, falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Or erred for some of you. <laughs> now to my point, I have a 
a Christian book in my possession entitled The Ages Before Moses. I assume it was, a publi- it was published in 1879 because that's when the preface was written and whoever bought it for their friend dated it 1876. It's a classic example of how during that era, Christian college professors were attempting to fit modern findings into the Bible. The author is John Gibson, who was a seminary professor. He later became a minister, and he wrote, quote, Further, when we take this view, and he's speaking of a regional flood view as opposed to a global flood view, when we take this view, not only do geological and other difficulties disappear, but there is decided confirmation from modern scientific research. And so he's, he's trying to take what they're, what they're finding in his day and cram it into the Bible. But I want you to understand, listen now, erroneous uh, teachings always develops when somebody attempts to force the Bible into the world's way of thinking. We're seeing it today with all the gender confusion. They're trying to fit that into the Bible. And, and we've got to be careful of that kind of thing because the Bible doesn't need to conform to the world, but the world ought to be conforming to the Bible. Now, when it, when it comes to the flood account, some within the Christian community, they like to uh, make the case for a regional flood. John Gibson did that, and I believe I'll see him in heaven from what he has written, but he just had a different opinion. And honestly, many of the points were very weak. <laughs> I say that because I'm right and he's wrong. Amen. <laughs> okay. Um, Frankly, a lot of it doesn't make sense, but the notion of, of a regional flood as opposed to a global flood doesn't make sense logically in light of what we read in this account. Uh, and I'm sure you've heard it before, but if this was just a regional flood, why didn't God just tell Noah to move? Why spend decades building this ark? But beside that simple thought, the Bible says in verse 21 here, and every living substance was destroyed which was upon the face of the ground both man and cattle and the creeping things and the fowl of heaven, and they were destroyed from the earth. Now, for that to be true, it has to be a global flood. Did you know fossilized sea life has been found on the highest mountains all around the world? Even on Mount Everest. In the Andes Mountains, at 13,000 feet above sea level, they have found about 500 fossilized gigantic oysters. They measure 11 to 12 feet across. They don't have legs. (laughs) Now how do you suppose those marine creatures got on top of these mountains all around the world? The most logical answer to me is the flood and not plate tectonics. Sorry, this is a geeky lesson today, okay? I'm going to wake you up at the end when I actually give you a point worth hearing. And <laughs> Coming in late as always is Lisa Russ. There are many other discoveries which point to a worldwide flood. According to the Bible record, the flood would have occurred approximately 4,300 years ago. Did you know the oldest living tree, nicknamed Methuselah, located in the White Mountains of California, is dated to 4,000 850 years old, according to tree ring analysis. And it's a known fact that trees can produce two rings in a season if the conditions call for it. 
This past year, I began saving articles I was coming across knowing we would eventually get to the flood that discussed things that occurred about 4,500 years ago. Unfortunately, all those articles disappeared from my computer, but there was one that I remembered, and so I re-looked it up. According to archaeologists, an ancient major city in China called Liangzhou, I think, was suddenly abandoned between or around 4,300 years ago. And you'll never believe the reason they came up with. A flood destroyed the city. I also find it interesting, many religions and ancient ancient cultures have their own form of a worldwide flood story. I'll call theirs a stories and ours an account. There are said to be over 500 flood legends out there, and some of them have striking similarities to this flood account here in Genesis. Now, I believe the Bible to be clear on the issue. This had to be a global flood. Verse 19 states, The waters increased above all the high hills that were under the whole heaven. This verse, by using the word all and whole, communicates to us what is called a double all. In other words, all the high hills under all the heaven. And this makes it a Hebrew superlative. I know, I'm working hard at this. This is what you pay me for, amen? This is, bre- this is better than what Pastor DeGarmo comes up with. I mean, what do you come up with? Plural, reciprocal pronouns? Oh, boom, I remembered it, amen? What this means is this is the ultimate expression of the word all. And this speaks to the universality of God's flood. By stating all twice, it's like saying the holy of holies, which was not just a holy place, it was the holy place. It's like Jesus being the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the King. He is the Lord. And so stating this twice is letting us know the certainty of the entire earth under the whole heaven being flooded. And if that didn't help you, I'll I'll help our southerners out. I'm glad Larry Brock made it back in. This will help you, Brother Brock. Where I come from, there's a difference between y'all and all y'all. Right? If I say y'all need to listen up, I may only be talking to the second row over here. But if I say all y'all need to listen, that's the entire congregation. So, Brother Brock, I hope that helps you, sir. <laughs> so, in verse 19, this is a superlative with double all. All y'all. Therefore, the word all, it cannot be diminished to mean something local. But this is speaking of the entire earth. All the hills under the whole heaven were covered. Isaiah 54, 9 says, For this is as the waters of Noah unto me, for I, as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. God seems to agree with the global flood. (laughs) Of course He does, amen. The reason why I believe this is a global flood, in addition to what I just said, the Bible says in verse 20, if verse 19 isn't clear enough, in verse 20, that this, this flood prevailed 15 cubits upward and covered the mountains. I take the meaning here of 15 cubits upward to be higher than any land that's on earth. Say, why do I do that? Because 15 cubits is only 22 and a half feet. And I'll I'll remind you, the ark was 30 cubits high. You talk about a bad forecast. 
Okay. Uh, Noah, the earth is going to flood. Build an ark 30 cubits high, and the water only comes up 15 cubits. That's a bad forecast. All right. Um, obviously, none of you worked as a forecaster for the amount of years that I did. Now, nobody looks at a hill that's 22 and a half feet and goes, man, that's a high hill. Certainly, nobody looks at a mountain and goes, man, 22 and a half feet. Did you pack enough? We're going to be able to make it up there and back. Um, Brother Russ, we were, staged, we were TDY together to Diego Garcia, and that's about the highest point on the island. Yeah. The swimming pool is at 23 feet. And I never remember being on that island going, man, I hope I can make it up to the swimming pool today. <laughs> so this must mean the depth of the water was 15 cubits above the mountains. In chapter 8, as the waters decreased, uh, verse 4 states, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, which means the waters had risen above the mountains enough for the ark to come back down upon them, right? And clearly there must have been mountains before the flood. The Bible says so. Uh, and, and I bring this up because many have a hard time with the notion that waters could prevail upon the earth enough to cover over the highest of mountains. And so they've come up with the theories that the floods caused the great upheavals of land to create the mountains we see today. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I wasn't there. But I personally think there's room for that line of thinking. But I'm not going to waste your time on why I think that. Either way, listen, I have no problem believing that my God, who can speak the world out of nothing, can flood the earth 15 cubits above Mount Everest. I mean, I think He's more than capable to do that. If He can save you, that's a miracle. He can do what He wants. And so I have no problem believing God can do that. He's capable if He were so to choose to do that. And so people say, well, how in the world could 40 days and 40 nights of rain cause that much water? Well, God could do that too if He wanted. But rain wasn't the only source of the water. Remember verse 11 says, The same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened. So it isn't only raining from above, but it's extremely important to remember, waters are shooting forth from below. Amen. I've noticed the skeptics often leave this verbiage out of their arguments. They only speak of the rain, and it's probably because they don't even read the Bible. Amen. As I was studying and reading these opinions on why a global flood would be impossible, I almost became obsessed with finding my own answer. And I wanted to find out, is it possible to flood the earth as it is found today? And because this book of Genesis is so foundational and it is so attacked, I felt it necessary to take a deep dive <laughs> into this possibility. Now, this is my own study. I didn't draw it from somebody else. And I'm by no means any kind of expert. So you can take this for what it's worth as I attempt to convince the gainsayers. Bear with me, I'm going to bore most of you. But here we go. The earth has hundreds of underground layers of water. They're known as aquifers. In America, the amount in aquifers is measured by acre feet. Say, what's an acre foot? Take one acre of land, fill it up to a depth of one foot. That's an acre foot. To help visualize this, an acre is roughly the size of a football field. More accurately, you go from goal line to the opposing 10-yard line, and you have one acre. At least that's what the internet told me. Amen. The largest aquifer in the United States is the Ogallala Aquifer, which has its, its name from Nebraska. 
It actually extends, it touches eight states. It's huge. Um, and, and it is estimated to contain 3.3 billion acre feet of water. The largest and deepest aquifer in the world is the Great Artesian Basin located in Australia, and it is estimated to contain over 52 billion acre feet of water. And those are current estimates after aquifers began to be heavily used for irrigation and water supply. But imagine 52 billion football fields with one foot of water on them stacked upon each other. It's too, it's too much to visualize. <laughs> and so I thought, well, let me try. Just the great artesian basin alone, I thought about the moon, right? <laughs> the moon is 238,885 miles from the earth, or 1,261,154,400 feet from earth. I got a lot of numbers, all right? So just, I don't care if you hit snooze for a minute, it's fine. This means that water from the Great Artesian Basin measured in acre feet could make 108,838 round trips to the moon and back. That's a lot of water. But that didn't help answer my question. There are 640 acres in a square mile, and the surface area of the earth is 196,900,000 square miles, which means the surface area of the earth is equivalent to 126,016,000,000 acres. Now, the highest point in earth today is Mount Everest at 29,035 feet. If, if the earth was to currently be flooded to 15 cubits above that, 29,327 and a half feet is what it would take. That would be three quadrillion, 695 trillion, 734 billion, 240 million acre feet of water. It gets worse. Hang on. One study I came across estimates the earth's groundwater to currently be at six quintillion gallons. What's a quintillion? It's a number with 18 zeros. These numbers used to seem so far-fetched until our national debt got into the trillions. And now it's like, okay, now I get it. There are 325,851 gallons in an acre foot. So according to that estimate, there would be 18,413,323,000,000 feet of groundwater on earth. But to flood the earth above Mount Everest, this still leaves us short by three quadrillion plus. I'll just say that. I got the exact numbers if you want them, amen. <laughs> the oceans are said to contain 343 quintillion gallons of water. That would be the equivalent of one quadrillion plus acre feet of water. Now, why is that significant? Because research in 2014 suggests that there is a huge underground ocean of water 400 miles below ground. Uh, PBS.org published an article on June the 13th, 2014, entitled, Huge Underground Reservoir holds three times as much water as the Earth's oceans. And you can find a lot of articles that state that same finding. If that's true, then that's an additional three quadrillion plus acre feet of water. Um, but let's also keep in mind that the, the Earth's aquifers have been depleted significantly over the last 80 years. In fact, the Ogallala Aquifer is already said to have been depleted by 30%. And so with these numbers in mind, uh, we're still short 436 trillion plus acre feet of water. Well, that's a lot more manageable number already. NASA.gov posted a study on June the 16th, 2015, where researchers found that 13 of the planet's 37 largest aquifers uh, studied between 03 and 13 were being depleted while receiving little to no recharge. Eight were classified as overstressed, 
with nearly no natural replenishment to offset usage. Another five were found to be extremely or highly stressed, depending on the level of replenishment in each. Those aquifers were still being depleted, but had some water flowing back into them, end quote. So that's a lot of water that's already been used, according to my calculations, which would have been available at the time of the flood. Is everybody with me? So, for example, with these aquifers being depleted so much, how much water would that be that we can't even calculate for? I don't know. I didn't have time to do that, okay? It was hard enough to do all this. Now, we're easily within striking distance of flooding the earth, even as it is today with Mount Everest, um, and there's still another possibility left to explore to make up this difference. Remember in verse 11 that along with the fountains of the deep breaking forth, we also read that the windows of heaven were opened. What does this mean? It appears from Scripture that this goes beyond just rainfall. Uh, Notice in verse 11 and 12, there are three things mentioned. It mentions the fountains of the great deep, it mentions the windows of heaven, and it mentions the rain. Now, if you'll glance over at chapter 8 and verse 2, you'll find the same pattern. The fountains also of the deep, the windows of heaven... Let, Let me just read you the verse... The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped and the rain from heaven was restrained. Now it appears that there are three different things happening here during the flood. It's not only raining, it's not only having water shoot up from below, but the windows of heaven are also opened. I personally believe that this gives room for the water canopy theory. You may recall I spoke about this in chapters 1 and 5 already, but this canopy may have aided in the longer lives that we find recorded before the flood. Because with that water canopy, if it existed the way we theorize that it may have, it would have caused the earth to be almost like a hyperbaric chamber where it would have increased oxygen levels, helps you heal, it helps you live longer and all the rest. Genesis 1, verses 6 and 7, it says, And God said, Let there be a firmament, that's an expanse, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. Peter may have also been talking about this when he wrote in 2 Peter 3.5, For this they willingly are ignorant that by the word of God the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of the water and in the water. The thought is that during the great flood, God would have collapsed this water canopy, at least to some extent, and allowed that water to have fallen, allowed that water to fall upon the earth. Since this water canopy would have encircled the entire earth, I would imagine there's plenty of water up there for God to flood the earth if He wanted, and I think it makes up for the difference I'm looking for. And and just keep in mind, none of my calculations take into account the 40 days and 40 nights of rainfall. I tried to get into that, but it seemed a little insignificant, so I stopped. But who knows how much God made it rain? I don't know. Um, And who knows if there's even more water below the earth to be discovered? And on that note, who knows if my calculations are even right? And of course, all of this assumes the earth was then as it is now. But I'm in the camp who does believe the flood likely reshaped the landscape on earth. It could be the mountains weren't as high as they are now. But remember my disclaimer, my disclaimer earlier, all these conjectures are man's opinion. They're not scriptural facts. So I'm sorry I got so wrapped up in this thought, but I hope I've shown that at least it's entirely possible for the whole earth to be flooded 15 cubits above the highest mountain, even as it is now. And hopefully you were able to soak up enough, inf- 
Even Bob's like, no, that's, that's not good. Hopefully you were able to soak up enough information to get my point. All right. I probably could have saved us all time by quoting these three verses. Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Amen. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm. There is nothing too hard for thee. Mark 10, 27. And Jesus looking upon them saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. So a global flood is not a problem with God. Amen? What I do hope is that some of that rambling helped build your faith in the Word of God, that it is true. But before we go, I do need to give you something that will hopefully help you where you're at in your Christian life today. From our text here, I believe there's some things we can glean. It seems I've mentioned a lot lately in various sermons that we all go through storms. I mentioned that Wednesday night in Esther. I think we talked about that last week in Genesis. Um, I want you to notice in verse 17, look at what it says. And the waters increased and bear up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth. Storms, listen now. If, if I lost you in all that, I want you to zero in. Storms are inevitable in this life. And, and I'm not talking about weather storms. I'm talking about the storms of life. I know in my life right now, it seems to be one thing right after the other. And I'm not going to bore you with the details. They're not important. But honestly, I could allow myself to, I could allow those things to sink me if I didn't have faith in God. That He's more than capable to care and provide for His own. In our flesh we often view these storms as disruptive. They take us out of our routine. They cost us time and money. They frustrate us. They complicate life. They cause distress. And some storms can even lead us into fear when we view it in our flesh. And we can find ourselves saying, like the disciples in the boat, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And then eventually we hear the Lord say, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? God does not want us going through the storms in our flesh apart from faith in Him. We are not to lean unto our own understanding. But He wants us to walk in the Spirit. Trust in Him to direct our paths. And through the storms, we need to keep our focus on the Lord and we need to cling to Him. When God unleashes this flood upon a wicked world, we see that the waters increased and it was the storm that caused the ark to lift up heavenward. It took the storm Charles Spurgeon wrote, Floods did but lift him heavenward, and winds did but waft him on his way. Outside of the ark, all was, ru- all was ruin. 
but inside all was rest and peace. Likewise, as the flood waters of life surge upon us, and they come against us, if we are trusting in the ark of Christ, then instead of feeling like we are drowning all the time, we can have rest and peace through it all, knowing that it is that storm that God is using to lift us upwards toward Himself. Closer to Him. Hallelujah. Don't fear the storms. Don't murmur and complain through the storms. Don't get mad at God. Don't view it as some strange thing, but allow God to lift you up higher, closer to Him. God wants you to grow through the storms. Somebody say amen. Y'all help me preach. God wants you to grow, to learn to trust Him more. God uses the storms to reveal who we are. Why does He do that? So that we see how desperately we need Him. And then He uses that storm to show how great and how powerful He is. God told His disciples, get in the boat, go to the other side. They got in the boat, they started heading the other side, they got in the storm. Jesus came walking upon the storm, amen. God used that storm, they were in the will of God. God said, get in the boat and go. And in the will of God, they had storms. And in that storm, Christ comes walking upon it. And He showed how great He is. They would have never seen that had it not been for the storm. Hey, back to that account where they're in the boat and it starts to sink. Remember that? And Jesus, He stands up in the, in, in the boat and He says, Peace, be still. I, I would have screamed it. He might have just spoke it. Amen. I'd have been my Baptist preacher on him. Peace, be still. But maybe he didn't do it that way. I don't know. But you know what the Bible says? It ceased. But but here's what I want you to get. The disciples who were fearful of the storm, do you know what it says in the next verse? They were fearful of Jesus. What did they say? What manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? How did they get to see that? They were in a storm. Let God use the storms in your life. James 1, 3 and 4, Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire Wanting nothing. So whatever you're going through this morning, and we're probably all going through something, don't panic. Don't start to worry. But trust the ark of Christ and watch as God uses those storms in your life to lift you up closer to Himself. And then you enter into an even closer walk with Him. Let's pray.